Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 through 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I want to start this morning with uh, a little bit of a personal note, um, a little bit of a a question that might get into your business uh, right at the start. Um, I want to ask you this morning, what worries you the most? What worries you the most? What is the greatest cause for concern in your life? What are the things that cause anxiety in your life, either most frequently or most intensely? What worries you the most? If you're a, a note taker, uh, pull out your journal, get started real quick, maybe make a list of three to five things, the top three to five things that worry you most often. If you're not a note taker, you can take a mental note and just hold that in your head for a couple of minutes. This morning, I think we get to see in our text uh, one of the things that worried and concerned the Apostle Paul the most, high up on his list. And we see it, I believe, dripping all over the text that we read this morning. It's most clear in chapter 3, verse 5, the last verse that we just read. Look in the text with me. Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I believe one of the things that worried Paul the most was the faith and perseverance of his churches. He was concerned, anxious, worried that Satan may be tempting them to walk away from Christ. That's what he's worried about the Thessalonians here. I'm I'm worried, I'm fearful that Satan may have come in and he may tempt you to walk away from the Lord. And this brought great concern into Paul's life. I said it's, it's most clear in verse 5, but like I said, it's all over the text. If you want to jump back to the beginning, chapter 2, verse 18, the, the end of verse 17, he says, we, we wanted to come and see you eagerly with great desire because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. I believe as, as we read through the passage, we see that Paul 
at the beginning, he says he wants to go see the Thessalonians. He earnestly, eagerly desires to see them. I believe that's because he's, he's worried about them. He's afraid that the tempter may have tempted them to walk away from the Lord. He's worried about their faith and their perseverance. And so he eagerly, earnestly desires to go and see them. And we see that what we'll talk about here in a little bit. Satan hinders that effort. They're unable as a group, Paul and Silas and Timothy, to go and see the Thessalonians, but he doesn't stop there. In chapter three, verse one, he uses the same language that he says in verse five, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. I believe when he says we could bear it no longer, twice in this text, what he means is our concern has risen so high that we had to do something. We couldn't stand the worry that we were feeling. We were too fearful. We had to do something. We couldn't bear it any longer. Paul was greatly concerned about the faith and the perseverance of the Thessalonians. And I I feel comfortable saying that this is one of the greatest concerns in his life because we don't just see this from Paul in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We see this fairly consistently throughout his writings. One of the, the clearest places is in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul there is, he's defending himself from these super apostles that have risen up in the church at Corinth. And these super apostles are trying to convince the church that they should listen to them instead of to Paul. And one of the ways that they try to convince the church that they're more credible than Paul is, is by listing off their accomplishments and their accolades. They kind of slide their resume across the table and say, we're credible, you should listen to us. We're more credible than Paul. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I'll play that game with you. Just bear with me one moment while I slide my resume across the table. And so he does just that. And he starts this long list of things he has suffered through as a servant of Christ. He says, I've, been, uh, I've received 39 lashes from the Jews five times. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been beaten with rods once. I've been imprisoned multiple times. I've been constantly left out in the elements, hungry, cold, tired, all these things I've gone through as a servant of Christ. And then at the end of the list, verse 28, as if it's the crescendo, the finale, on top of all of this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, Paul says, I have this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul says, every day I feel anxious. I feel worried about the churches that I've planted. And I believe what we've seen in 1 Thessalonians is his anxiety here is he's worried that his churches won't persevere in the Lord, that they they might fall away from Christ. And he says, every day I feel daily pressure daily anxiety because of this. That's why I feel comfortable saying this is a a top tier concern in Paul's life. Even earlier in 2 Corinthians 11, he says something remarkably similar to what we see in 1 Thessalonians. In verse three of chapter 11, he says, I am afraid, see that language again, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's Paul's fear. And he says it's daily, it's regular, and it's intense. He lists it as the grand finale of all the things he has to suffer through as an apostle. This is a great concern in Paul's life, the perseverance and faith of those that he ministered to. And so we've got to turn and ask ourselves, do we share 
this concern? Do we share the same concern that Paul had? Would our level of, of worry and concern about the faith of those around us crack the top three in our list of things that worry us most regularly, most intensely? Would it crack the top five of our list of things that worry us most often, most intensely in our lives? Would it crack the top 20 of our list? Is it anywhere close to the top? Our concern over the faith and perseverance of those around us. To my students in the room, are you guys ever concerned that your classmates may walk away from the Lord after they graduate or even before then? And when you think about that, does that strike your heart with fear and worry over that prospect? For those of you in the room who are a part of a life group or a DTM, you meet with the, the same group of people every week. Are you ever worried that those who you meet with may still make shipwreck of their faith and prove that they never truly shared in salvation? And again, when you think of that prospect, does it strike great fear and concern in your heart? We are, we're Baptist at our root in this church, which means we like to sit in roughly the same seat every week if possible. <laughs> so are you ever anxious about the people sitting around you, the same group every week, in front of you, behind you, to your sides? Are you ever anxious, wondering, how is their faith going? Are you ever anxious when they don't show up for three weeks, for six weeks, are you calling them anxious, worried? I want to check on you. I want to see what's going on. I haven't seen you in a little while. Or are we more likely to gossip about that and say, I haven't seen so-and-so in two months and maybe they're looking for another church. Maybe not. I don't know. They weren't ever that consistent anyways. Which response is more likely in our lives? Do we share the same concern that Paul had? And I want to make a quick caveat that this is not a sermon on worry and anxiety in general. And I know that a lot of you are going through very real, deep um, things in your life that cause concern and worry and anxiety. Don't hear me belittling those uh, as if this is the only thing that you should be concerned about in your life. All I'm asking is, is it anywhere near the top of our list? Is it on our radar at all, this concern that Paul seemed to have over the faith of those around him? Last week, Zach gave us a, a bit of a crash course on discipleship from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, earlier in the chapter. And he said, he told us how we're supposed to disciple people as spiritual parents. He told us what tool we should use to disciple people, the Word of God. And he told us what the goal of discipleship is, a life transformed by the gospel. And today, this week, we're going back before any of that, before any of discipleship begins, right back to the very start. Because if discipleship is ever going to happen, it must begin with a genuine concern for the faith of those around us. If discipleship at LifePoint Church is ever going to get off the ground, the very beginning must be a real, deep, authentic concern over the faith of those that we share fellowship with in this church. That's the beginning of discipleship. That's what moves us to discipleship in the first place. And we can know a lot of other things. We can know, we can know that we're supposed to disciple people. That's our responsibility. We can memorize the Great Commission. 
We can know how we should disciple people, what tools we should be using, and these are good things that we should know. But if we don't have a real burden, a real concern, a real worry about the faith of those around us, discipleship will never begin. It will never start. The good news is, once that burden is actually in place, discipleship will simply be a natural next step. It's an overflow from that. If you have a deep-seated burden and concern for the faith of those around you, you will find a way to use your gifts, your talents, your time, your influence, whatever you have, in order to see others grow and persevere in their faith. It's just a natural response to that fear and anxiety. Do we share this concern that the Apostle Paul had? So we've seen First off, that, that Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians. He was worried about their perseverance in the faith. We've seen, I believe we should model our lives after that. We should share in this concern with those, especially within our church. And I wanna turn quickly here in a minute to see how Paul actually resolved and responded to his anxiety. But before we get off on that track, we need a, a quick little side track here because some of you might be a little confused right now and rightfully so wondering what is Andrew doing on stage telling us that we should be worried what is he doing up here telling us we should be anxious we should be concerned that does not sound like a sermon I don't know are you sure that we should be copying Paul here I know sure it seems like he was anxious it seems like he was worried and concerned but are you sure we should respond by copying that by bearing that same burden I'm not a theologian but I know Paul well enough to know that he's the one that said be anxious for nothing and so are we really supposed to copy him in this is this really something we should be emulating in our lives we got to resolve that tension real quick and so, first off, I do want to say Paul, Paul's a sinner, just like me and you, and so I, I'm, I'm confident that he didn't always handle anxiety and worry perfectly in his life. I'm, I'm very confident of that. But, in the same way, I don't, I don't see any hint in our text today in 1 Thessalonians or in the text that we looked at in 2 Corinthians that Paul views himself as being sinful in what he's doing. I don't see any shame in what he says. He doesn't give any indication that he feels like this concern or this worry is unjustified or ungodly. In fact, he seems very proud that he was anxious and disconcerned over his churches. And so I'm, I'm comfortable proceeding as if Paul felt as if he was in the right here, as if that's something that we should adopt in our own lives. But how can that be? How can Paul be anxious? How can he be worried? And how can we be anxious about the faith of those around us and not be in sin. And again, this is not a sermon on anxiety or worry, so we're only gonna go one level deep here. But on one level, fear, anxiety, uh, they can be good, healthy, even God-given things that we experience, those feelings. I'll give you some examples real quick. If someone, God forbid, breaks into your home in the middle of the night, your immediate feeling result will be uh, fear at least a little bit, even if you're a macho man in the room. You'll have a little bit of fear in your life, and that fear is a good, healthy, God-given response because that's gonna move you to get out of bed quickly and not just roll out of bed and rub your eyes and move on like it's not a big deal. That fear is gonna put you into action. It's gonna have an appropriate response with it. That's a, that's a good thing, I think we would argue. In the same way, anxiety can function similarly on one level. Audrey and I, 
a couple weeks ago, went to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. And we heard there's this hike nearby where people have seen a mother grizzly bear and her three cubs several times the last week. And we hear wind of this, and so we make a beeline for that hike, obviously. <laughs> and we are super excited. We get on the trail. And as we're hiking, there is a healthy, natural, even God-given level of anxiety as we hike. I want to say mostly from Audrey, but I think a little bit on my part as well. <laughs> we are hiking, and that anxiety produces a proper response. We're a little more careful as we hike. We are louder as we hike to try to make some noise. We have our heads on a swivel, making sure we're not just going to stumble across this grizzly bear when it's too late. And so we felt this healthy level of anxiety, and it produced a proper response. And I want to say in the same way for us who have been born again by the Spirit, that some level of worry, concern, anxiety even over our own faith and over the faith of those around us is a spirit-produced good thing. It's a spirit-produced thing that we should embrace. And it's a spirit-produced thing that should produce a proper response. And so again, without jumping into anxiety too deeply, I think it's the object of our anxiety and our response to anxiety which can lead us into sin. And I believe we've already seen that the, the object of Paul's anxiety was healthy. He's concerned about the Thessalonians' faith and the faith of all of his churches. That's a good, healthy object. And now we get to turn and see how did Paul respond? How did he try to resolve, put out these fires of worry and anxiety in his heart? And I think we can see two ways he routinely did this. The first one is, is clear from our text today. The second one we're going to have to zoom out just a little bit for. The first way Paul attempted to resolve his anxiety was through dedicated discipleship efforts, through hard work in discipleship. Look at the text with me, chapter 2, again down to verse 17 and 18. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So we get this picture here that Paul, again, because of his worry, because of his fear for the faith of the Thessalonians, he wants to go and see them. And so he tries, him, Silas, and Timothy try to go and see the Thessalonians. And so they, they attempt to go back, and it says Satan blocked our path. And we don't get details on that, what that looked like, how Satan hindered them from going forward. But we do see, Paul says, we tried to come and see you again and again. And so we know at least twice, Paul, Timothy, and Silas try to go to the Thessalonians, Satan blocks their path. They at least tried one more time. We're going to try it this way. Let's try a different route. Let's try a different way to see you. And again, Satan blocked their path. And we don't have a definitive number. Maybe they tried again a third time. We really need to see these guys. So we're going to try it again. You see the, the earnest desire for Paul here. We see that he was willing to overcome obstacles in order to see the Thessalonians be discipled. He's willing to push through some difficulties, some inconveniences in order to see the Thessalonians be discipled. If you've ever had travel plans and had a flight canceled or you missed a flight and you got to reroute, that's an obstacle. That's not fun to deal with. And I imagine for Paul, thousands of years ago, it was a little more difficult for him to try one way, then reroute, then maybe reroute again. He goes through a lot to try to make it back to the Thessalonians. He's trying to overcome these obstacles. 
And ultimately, Satan hinders their path like we saw earlier, but he doesn't stop there. Chapter three, verse one, we saw this earlier. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. You can tell by chapter three, verse one, that this was a bit of a sacrifice for Paul and Silas. He says, we're, we're willing to be left behind alone, right? So they try to go as a group to see the Thessalonians. That's unsuccessful. And they say, our concern is still rising. We're still more worried. And so we're gonna try another uh, approach. We're gonna just send Timothy. And you can see that that's a sacrifice. Paul and Silas are now losing a great gospel worker that could be working alongside them in order to send him back to the Thessalonians. Paul and Timothy have a close relationship, like a father and son is the picture we get in scripture. And now they're gonna be separated. And we can assume probably that Timothy was in a little bit of danger as he tried to make his way back to the Thessalonian church all alone. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're not just willing to push through obstacles, overcome difficulties to see the Thessalonians be discipled. They're also willing to make great sacrifices. Paul worked really hard to try to put this anxiety of his to rest. Zach talked about this last week, that discipleship is hard work. Just like regular parenting is hard work, Spiritual parenting is really hard work. There's gonna be obstacles, there's gonna be difficulties, and we're gonna to have to make great sacrifices in order to see others persevere and grow in their faith. That's something we see Paul was willing to do, and he's actually not very shy about telling us this. This is another thing we see consistently through Paul's writings. One clear place is in Colossians chapter one. Listen to the language that Paul uses here. Verse 29, he says, for this I toil and struggle with all of this energy that he powerfully works within me. And in verse 28, we see what is he toiling for? What is he struggling for? What is he expending all of his energy on? That he might present everyone mature in Christ. That's a nice little synonym there, description of what it means to disciple someone. I wanna present them mature in Christ. And Paul says, I'm spending all of my energy, I'm toiling, I'm struggling, I'm overcoming these obstacles, I'm making sacrifices, all of this in the name of discipleship, that people would be one day presented before the Lord, pure, blameless, and mature. And so we have to ask ourselves again, do we share this concern? Is our concern this strong, as strong as the Apostle Paul's was? Maybe earlier when we asked if we, we share the same concern that Paul had, if you worry about the faith of others, maybe you said, yes, I do. I think about the faith of other people. I'm concerned about that. Do our actions actually demonstrate that? Are we willing to overcome obstacles and difficulties in order to see other people grow and be discipled in the Lord? Are we willing to sacrifice time, energy, comfort level, maybe money in order to see people be discipled? Are we willing to overcome obstacles and make sacrifices, do this diligent, dedicated work of discipleship, just like the Apostle Paul was? That's the first way he attempts to put out these fires of anxiety in his life, but that's not the only way. And if that's the only way we try, we'll be in trouble. The second way that Paul puts out the, the fires of anxiety in his heart is he resolved his anxiety through a deep trust in God's control. He resolved his anxiety with a deep 
trust in God's control. This balanced approach, dedicated discipleship work, and also deep trust in God's ultimate control is what finally put out the concern in Paul's life. And like I said, we gotta zoom out a little bit for this one, but I believe it's consistent enough in Paul's writings for us to see a, a pattern. We'll start in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Zach's benediction last week, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, my favorite verses in the book. Paul ends his letter this way. Listen to what he says. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There's another close synonym to discipleship. Sanctification, discipleship, closely related. He wants God to sanctify them completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I can picture Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonians and he gets to the end of his letter and he pins verse 23 and verse 24. And after that, there's just a really quick salutation at the end. And I imagine Paul put the period on this letter and rolled over and slept really well at night, knowing two things. One, I have done all in my power. I've expended all of my energy to see these people mature and grow in the Lord. And I know that God is ultimately in control. He promises to sanctify his children. He promises to oversee their discipleship. And the combination of these two things, I imagine, put Paul to sleep well most nights. I don't picture Paul with his anxiety staying up all night biting his nails, wondering what's gonna happen. I picture Paul doing these two things over and over every single day. I'm working as much as I can to see others be discipled and I'm trusting that God ultimately oversees that work. And that even when my efforts don't seem like they're enough, even when the obstacles are too great to overcome, even when I mess up as I disciple people, I'm trusting that God has promised to sanctify those whom he has called. It's the combination of these two which finally puts Paul's anxiety to rest. And again, we don't see this just in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We actually see a similar pattern in the book of Philippians, which we studied last summer. There's some close parallels between these letters. Paul seemed to really love both of these churches. He talked really favorably, really proudly about both of them. We see, we've, we've already seen the concern he had over the Thessalonians. It's not quite as clear in Philippians, but he tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and, tr and trembling. And he says, similarly to what we just saw in our text, that if you don't continue in the Lord, my labor will be in vain. It'll be a waste. He says that same thing to the Philippians. And this time, instead of ending his letter with a great promise about God's sovereignty, he begins his letter that way. Right at the very beginning, Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this, similar promise. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm confident of this, this combination of dedicated, hard discipleship work and deep trust in God's ultimate control over that work allowed Paul to feel great anxiety and to put that fire out quickly through these two methods. And if we would model our lives after Paul, if we're gonna adopt this burden this morning, if we're gonna feel great concern over the faith of those around us, this is how we'll have to put that concern to rest, through really dedicated work in discipling others, overcoming obstacles, making sacrifices for their growth in the Lord, and also a really, really deep trust that God oversees these efforts.
So I hope we've seen uh, this morning that discipleship is really important. I hope we've seen last week that discipleship is extremely important. And if it's that crucial, the work of discipleship, I want us to end our time together in a similar way to how we began our time together with a a piercing question that is intended to uh, feel a little conviction and move towards some reformation and change in our lives. Look one more time at the text with me in uh, 1 Thessalonians verses 19 and 20 this time. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord? Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul had the Thessalonian church as his joy and his crown. He hoped one day to stand before the Lord side by side with this Thessalonian church. And he wrote again the same thing to the church at Philippi. In chapter 4, verse 1, the book of Philippians, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. We get this picture in Paul's writing that he was eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord so that he could present pure, blameless disciples before God and finally hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the sense I get in Paul's writing, that he looked forward to Christ's return with that kind of expectation. I'm going to bring disciples that I've labored for and that you have ultimately worked through me to produce before you at your coming. That was Paul's hope, looking forward to the resurrection. And we've got to ask again, who is your joy and crown in the Lord? Who is your joy and crown? Who do you hope to stand side by side with before the Lord one day? Who is that for you? Do you have somebody? Do you have more than one someone? Let me ask that question in a way that's maybe a little more clear. Would anyone point to you as the primary reason that they are still in Christ today? Would anyone point to you as one of the main reasons I am still following Christ today because of this person, because of the way they discipled me, the way they taught me, the way they encouraged me, the way they exhorted me in the Lord. I'm still following Christ today because of Andrew Madison. Are there there people that would say that about you in your life? That doesn't mean you have to be the only person that they point to. It doesn't mean you have to have been there when they... Uh, received Christ. You didn't have to present the gospel to them. You don't have to be there when they became Christians. But in short order, would people get to your name? This is the reason why I'm still following Christ. That this person's ministry and discipleship in my life is the reason I'm still following after the Lord. One of my favorite pastors and preachers, John Piper, he gave a, a sermon in the year 2000 one of his most famous messages ever. It's called Don't Waste Your Life at the Passion Conference in 2000. And he, during that sermon, he pulls out an article from Reader's Digest. And he jokes about how no one reads Reader's Digest anymore, but he still does. And I'm sure that's way more true today, 20 years later than it was then. But he pulls this article out and he begins to read. 
and he reads a story about Bob and Penny. Bob and Penny, they took retirement from their jobs early when they were in their 50s and they worked in the Northeast of the US. They retired early, they moved down to Florida and they bought a big boat, a 30 foot boat. And they cruised around for the remaining years of their lives collecting seashells and practicing softball. They played in a softball league, they cruised around on their boat, they collected shells. And Piper finishes reading this article, he wraps it up, puts it away, and he makes a quick turn to talk about how that's a tragedy, that these people would spend the last 20, the last 30 years of their lives collecting seashells. The last chapter of their lives before they would stand before a holy God to give an account for what they had done with their lives, they spent it collecting seashells and playing softball. And then he pushes further and he paints this picture of what it will be like when they actually do stand before the Lord one day to give an account of their lives. And what will be sitting beside them is their shell collection. That's what they'll have to present before the Lord. This is what I did the last 30 years of my life. Isn't this cool? Look at these shells. And the ludicrousy of that picture sets on its own. The tragedy of that picture sets on its own, but it hits all the more firmly when we compare that to Paul's hope for the resurrection, for Christ's return. Paul wanted to walk before the Lord and present a collection of disciples, not a collection of shells. And we have to ask ourselves one more time, is that what our future picture looks like? If we were honest this morning, really honest with ourselves, looking forward to the Lord's return, would our moment before God look more like Bob and Penny's, presenting a collection of things that we've amassed over our lifetime, or would it look more like the Apostle Paul's, proudly standing beside people that we have labored to bring there through the efforts that Christ gives us? If we're honest with ourselves, what does that picture look like? That vision of Christ coming, what does it look more like? Bob and Penny's or the Apostle Paul's? Our work of, make, of making disciples is a, it's a commission to all believers. No one is exempt from the work of making disciples. And so the call and the challenge for all of us this morning is to make disciple making a top tier concern in our lives. A top tier priority that we think about weekly and daily, the faith, the perseverance, the growth of those around us. Let's pray towards that end. Father, God, you have given us a call and a commission and ultimately a, a privilege to take work in this great uh, work of making disciples of all nations and of those at LifePoint Church. You have given us that task. You promised to oversee it yourself. You promised to work through us as we pursue this great work. And so God, I pray this morning that you would begin the initial step, which is producing in us a, a spirit-produced, lively burden and authentic concern for the faith of those around us. For those that we see every week at church, those that we share fellowship with and life groups and small groups, God, would you help us to be concerned over their faith? 
with the same level of concern that we have over our faith. God, may we be watchful, just like the Apostle Paul was, not assuming that our faith or the faith of those around us is, is over and secure and that there's no more work to be done, but diligently pursuing it, just like the Apostle Paul did while trusting in you. Father, would you produce this burden in us as, as something that only your spirit can bring. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.